I'm excited about this fall because uh, it is uh, the reinvigoration of my physical life in one particular way. We have uh, a Duarte, which is the west end of, uh, or the, really it's central San Gabriel Valley. Uh, for our purposes, it's the west end of our mission field, or the east end of our mission field. Uh, and we have a missional community, a Bible study, a home group, a small group, a prism group, whatever you want to call it, at our house every Wednesday night. And then afterwards, I go down to the courts at the bottom of the hill from our house and I play basketball. Now, I've tried to go down there by myself on a number of occasions, and there are a lot of young athletic men down there playing basketball, and if I try to get into one of the games, which is usually like choose them by sides, like I pick him, I pick him, I pick him, I will sit and watch for hours until basically there aren't enough players to field a team, and then they'll let me in. I mean, that's the course of my life, and so... If I actually want to play, I need somebody to be my advocate, and that advocate is Albert Halim. Now, Al here will go to the basketball court for me, and because he's young and because he's buff and because he's a heck of a ball player, he can wedge his way in there and very boldly amongst the young men goes, who's got next game? Okay, I got it, and I'm picking the fat bald guy over there. (laughs) And what happens is, is I'm all of a sudden promoted to this great place of starting the next game. But I couldn't do it without Albert. And it takes me all the way back to like elementary school. Do you remember the fears when you were in school? And you're like, am I going to get picked for kickball? And, you know, you wondered, am I going to get asked to dance? Am I going to be able to find anybody to go to prom with me? All of those feelings. That's how I feel as a 48-year-old man at the basketball court. It's also something that I've experienced lately uh, vis-a-vis our mission. And one of the things we are hoping for as a church is that we would develop friendships with people who need to know the love of God. I can't explain clearly enough how difficult that is when your occupation is you're a preacher. Most conversations for me, most here, particularly in Southern California, end about the time they find out what I do for a living. So the idea that somebody would say, hey, I'm going to be buddies with this guy. I'm going to be friends with this guy. I'm going to play golf with this guy. I'm going to hang out with this guy. They go down when you announce what you do for a living is you're a preacher. So I have to like really like grit my teeth and then find places where people will let me into their world. And one of the ways I've tried to do that recently is try to join a softball team. And the way it happens in my community is you have to sign up. And if you sign up for this draft list, they say, you know, what's your name? You know, what's your height? What's your weight? What's your position? How old are you? And apparently this is the deciding factor because I've not gotten a single call. They don't know me. They don't know how far I can hit a softball, which I want you to know. It's pretty darn far. They don't know anything about me. I can't even get into this softball league. I actually went to the field like a beggar. Please, softball for the old man. And I couldn't even get people to take me then. You need sometimes somebody of influence to push your way in. You need somebody who is strong. Perhaps you've been the beneficiary of having a big brother. Or you yourself have been a big brother. And, and I say this with some bit of experience. I have five sisters, no brothers, four older sisters. And I just want you to know in the, in the raucous world that is, uh, uh, you know, pre-adolescence, boys fight. 
And one of the things that will give you more street cred is if you have an older brother. Having four older sisters gets you nothing. Nothing. And so I got beat up constantly because I had nobody to appeal to. I couldn't go, yeah, well, my brother's going to come out here. What am I going to say? Yeah, my three sisters and their cheerleading outfits are going to come out here and take you guys on. Although my sister, Kathy, she could have taken any one of them. I'm pretty sure of it. That said, when we look at the Psalms, and today we conclude a summer-long study in our favorite psalm, the, the overwhelming sense that you get reading King David is that he knows better than most that as strong and studly as he was, he is nothing apart from the presence of God. That he might think for a moment, I can do this, and then God, through the circumstances of his life, leads him to once again recognize he has no capacity to do anything apart from the grace and presence of Almighty God. We're concluding our study in Psalms with perhaps the most famous of all Psalms, the 23rd. Psalm 23 gets read at funerals. It gets read in public locations. It is something that in the Judeo-Christian world is sort of universally loved, which means if you go to a synagogue, they'll read Psalm 23, and they'll do that at a Christian church as well. People who don't even know what the Bible is comprised of, people who know no Bible verses know, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. You, you, you're, I'm amazed, maybe you would be too, at people who have virtually zero comprehension of what the character of God is will refer to God as the good shepherd. And maybe that's because so many churches are called good shepherd. The Psalms, as we've said on occasion, are, are like the other books of the Old Testament. They're organized in a category of five. Uh, the, the first five books of the Bible were organized. It's called the Pentateuch, all right, the five books of the law. The Psalms are, are divided into five books as well. And scholars believe that David compiled book one, which is Psalm 1 through Psalm 41, and book 4, which is Psalm 90 through Psalm 106, and that he wrote many of the Psalms in book 2, which is Psalms 42 through 72. And David has an ability to connect with us, and in your bulletin today, if you didn't see and didn't get one share, there Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, wrote something really fascinating about King David, and I want to read the first and the last parts of this because I think it's relevant to our discussion of Psalm 23, and in particular, David as a psalmist. Among all the saints, and I'm quoting Spurgeon, whose lives are recorded in holy writ, David possesses an experience of the most striking, varied, and instructive character. In his history, we meet with trials and temptations not to be discovered as a whole in other saints of ancient times, and hence, he is all the more suggestive a type of our Lord. David knew the trials of all ranks and conditions of men. And uh, I'll jump to the bottom, the final paragraph. It is probably from this cause that David's psalms are so universally the delight of experienced Christians. Whatever our frame of mind, whether ecstasy or depression, David has exactly described our emotions. He was an able master of the human heart, because he had been tutored 
in the best of all schools, the school of heartfelt personal experience? Are we instructed in the same school as we grow matured in grace and in years? We increasingly appreciate David's psalms and find them to be green pastures. My soul, let David's experience cheer and counsel thee this day. King David was a shepherd. He was a king. He was a warrior. I don't know what your experience is in life, but David's been there. He's been at the bottom of the totem pole, one of the youngest of his brothers, maligned by his brothers when he tried to be assertive. I mean, he got bullied by his older brothers. You know, he was, he was part of a really, really interesting family dynamic. Uh, a father who did not exalt him, did not presume that he would be chosen king. So if you've ever felt slighted by your own dad, David's been there. David had a best buddy whose father didn't like him very much. <laughs> he had an employer, the same guy incidentally, who was jealous of his success and tried to run him down. He's had people after his scalp. He's had people trying to harm him that, didn't de- that he didn't deserve it. He's had people trying to harm him when David did deserve it. He's blown it big, as we preached on earlier this summer in Psalm 51, and he's been falsely accused of blowing it. He's been all over the map. He's been in the highest place of leadership. He's experienced family disasters. As a matter of fact, his struggles with his children are his largest trials in life, many of them as a byproduct of his own sin. So when David comes to write his heartfelt feelings and prayers and expressions, he's drawing on all of these experiences. And like Spurgeon says, that's why it's become something that is so important to so many believers. In David's David's collection here in Psalm 23, he refers to God as his shepherd. And I think his primary identification before being lifted into the pages of scriptures would have been as a shepherd. David tended sheep. This is what he did for a living. When he fought Goliath in the great battle against the Philistines, David even mentioned that as a shepherd, he would have to fight off wild animals to protect the sheep. And so when he refers To God as our shepherd, he's thinking of himself in that role of being a protector, a provider. And incidentally, this is how he would divide up Psalm 23. There's a threefold testimony, really, that he would lack nothing, that he would fear nothing, and that he would be able to dwell in the presence of the shepherd. These are the three parts of Psalm 23. And it's reflective as well of David's view that he is merely a sheep in God's shepherd. He said this in Psalm 100, verse 3, know that, the Lord is, that, know that the Lord, he is God, it is he who made us, and we are his, we are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. His d- greatest description, though, of the good shepherd, as we know from Jesus' words, is another word to describe our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in John 10, 11 where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We see in David's description in Psalm 23 something that should give comfort to us in these three areas, that we would lack nothing, that we would fear nothing, and that we would be able to dwell in the presence of the Lord. So let's walk through this psalm together, and hopefully in this you'll hear the encouraging words of the Savior who's calling out to you and I to know him better. 
to know and enjoy the benefits of being his children better, presuming you are one of his. The first thing I'd like to share with you this morning is this. His provision supplies our needs. Now, critically speaking, you have to understand, when somebody says that we'll lack nothing, it doesn't mean that we'll have like a Mercedes-Benz and a boat. You know, it doesn't mean that every desire you would ever have, every pleasure you would ever seek. When we talk about lack, it means that I don't have the ability to feed myself. I, don't, I can't meet the basic needs of my life. The things that God would want me to have, the scriptures would contend that I, as a child, as one of his sheep, you, as one of the parts of his flock, you are going to have what you need. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And one thing David did as a shepherd was providing for the sheep. And in every way, not just their material needs, he protected them, he cared for them. Many times in scripture we see the imagery and Jesus himself gives the parable of the lost sheep where the shepherd will go off and take one of these sheep that is strayed and bring it back to the flock. And this is more than functionally caring for in a detached way, providing for it is a shepherd who cares about an individual sheep. And in many ways, in the same way, you and I care about our pets. Now you say, how much do we care about our pets? Oh, have you heard this? From the Huffington Post, many people would save their dog over a foreign tourist, a survey says. There is a high-speed bus barreling toward you with no signs of slowing down. Your pet dog and a foreign tourist stand in its path, deer in the headlight style. You can only save one. Which do you choose? About 40% of the participants faced with this hypothetical question said they would save their dogs rather than the foreigner. And for those of you who think women are always better, 45% of women said they'd save their dog instead of the foreigner. So once, the ladies are worse than the fellas. The research article published in the journal uh, Anthrozoos also found that those who said they would choose their dog over the stranger had several disparate ways to defend their moral judgment. For example, just over 25% said that the tourist should be smart enough to get out of the way. While more than half simply said, I love my pet. In a piece for the Wall Street Journal, professor and author Robert Sapolsky said he considers the findings troubling proof of how easily we dehumanize people who are different from us. He notes... We can extend empathy to another organism and feel its pain like no other species, but let's not be too proud of ourselves. As this study and too much of our history show, we're pretty selective about how we extend our humanness to other human beings. You know, the painful reality is is that many of us wish that somebody would love us like we love our pets. What we long for, a friend of mine, a mentor of mine, Mike Kanjan, just posted about this recently. Uh, What we really long for is that somebody would adore us, care for us enough to run into the street and knock us out of the way. That's what our souls are longing for. And this is what God has promised when he says, he's our shepherd and we shall not be in want. 
He says, he is our shepherd. We, we will not need for anything. He is someone who's caring for, not just our physical needs, but the deepest needs of our heart. Psalm 23 is a psalm of praise that is deeply rooted in God's covenant promise to David. And in, a, in what the Israelites would refer to as a pastoral community, the shepherd would be recognized as an illustration of one who serves as a leader, one who is a companion, a guide, a provider. We have that luxury in the New Testament as well. Our elders at churches, and this is a critical point for the people of Prism Church to understand, is that in 2014, we're moving towards the establishment of elders, as is our charge by our network. So we will be governed by a plurality of elders, as the Bible would direct us to be, and those elders are called shepherds. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, it won't be on the screen. You'll have to trust me. I am ordained minister. I'm reading the actual word of God. So I exhort the elders among you, 1 Peter 5, 1, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The notion is that there is the chief shepherd, which of course we all know is Jesus. But under him are these under shepherds who are responsible for caring for people. All too often in churches, and I know I've been a pastor at four different churches, I can tell you that a lot of churches function like the elders are a board of directors, kind of obtusely making decisions about the the business of the church. When the characteristics that are given to us to describe elders are that they are first and foremost caregivers. Otherwise, how could you have, as Timothy is ordered to use as a barometer for an elder's qualification... Uh, hospitality as a characterization of somebody who is an elder. I've not met a lot of grumpy old people who liked having people at their house. So why in the world the church ever felt like that was a good example to make somebody an elder? A grumpy, angry old person because they have a business that makes a lot of money or because they have a lot of influence in the community. I got an idea. Let's make them an elder. That's not what the scriptures say. They say if you're going to have an elder, they're going to have to have a demonstrated track record of actually caring for the sheep. I mean, wow, what a novel thought. You and I are in a place where as we get ready to move forward with the establishment of elders in our church, the people who want to be elders is a very clear path. And it's a good thing to want to be an overseer, but it isn't an overseer of the business. It's somebody who says, I care enough about people that I want them in my house. I want to shepherd them, but not so that I can be their shepherd, but so that we can all go to the great shepherd. This is someone who cares. And we discover when we read in 1 Peter 5 that the truth of verse 3 has to be preeminent in the minds of anybody who would call themselves a shepherd. They have to love to restore the souls of people. Our Lord is our shepherd. He's, if you're a believer, he's your shepherd. And you're not going to have any needs, physically or emotionally. He's going to meet what you need. He's promised that. And then he said, 
but primary amongst his concerns for you is the restoration of your soul. The bringing of peace to your soul. That's the second thing I'd like to share with you this morning. Not only is his provision supplying our needs, but his power stymies our fears. This is a huge part of life for many of us. Anxiety, depression, sadness, worry. All of the things that seem to combat against our soul. David knows these fears better than most. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He begins in verse 3. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What are your fears? Who are your enemies? Are they people who are after your job? Is it a family member who's decided that they, they want to say bad things about you? Is it somebody in your world that's just making life a living hell for you? Or is it literally the hound of hell? Is your world uh, part of that world dominated by an ongoing struggle with the devil himself? You find yourself locked in this spiritual battle that you keep losing, but you know you're supposed to be winning. At least you think so. And and yet you, you keep getting beat to death in this spiritual combat for your soul. Are you, or is that locked you in anxiety and fear? You and I, we have lots of worries, whether you're a parent worrying about your children or worrying about providing for your family or worrying about losing your job or worrying about getting a job. All of these things will dominate our lives. And the words of Jesus again and again to his disciples after his resurrection was, do not fear. This was the admonition of, to all the great warriors, including Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. Do not fear. We are encouraged, and certainly by David, that even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because God is with us. Now, the valley of the shadow of death is an interesting phrase. A variety of different commentators have kind of chimed in on what that actually means. I loved what one uh, post said. It was a comment on a, on a writing about this subject. But as a Californian, I'll, you may appreciate this. Uh, when somebody asked, what is the value of the shadow of death, somebody commented, uh, and I quote, it is near Fresno, avoided at all costs. And I thought, you know, that's fair. I think that's pretty accurate, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Uh, For a shepherd, and understand, if you can picture yourself leading sheep through a valley. Now, we live in a pretty large valley, you know, between two mountain ranges, north and south of us. Now, we're closer, obviously, to the north range than we are to the south range. But if you were to lead uh, uh, animals through a valley, something happens at dark. That's when the predators come out. And I know this because I live on a hill near the mountains now. I did not. For four years, I rented a house down in the flat of Arcadia. We didn't see bears there. Guess what we see at Casa de Ryer? Ryer Summit is populated with one bear in particular that loves to tear at my my garbage cans. And I'm winning the battle. I want you to know I have bungeed the top of it shut. And I hear him out there just getting so mad. He's like, I hate this guy. You know, and I can just hear him. And I'm inside just laughing because I have no life. But at the same time... Uh, The bears come out at night. We don't often see them, like, bouncing around during the day. They're a a tad skittish, potentially, of people. But one thing's for sure is that for a a shepherd with a bunch of sheep, the wolves, 
would come out, A, when the sheep were stationary, not moving, and B, when the shepherds potentially were asleep. And, and that, under the cover of darkness, is the best time for predators to attack. For you and I, whatever your fears are, whenever they come, they oftentimes attack with ruthlessness. And what we are assured of from Scripture is that we don't have to fear primarily because of the power of his presence, because he is with us. The underlying theme to all of Scripture, if you didn't know, is the glory of God, the first and um, primary question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a religious document that many of us Reformed preachers love, uh, is uh, the question is, uh, what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man, for those of you raised in Reformed churches, glorify God and enjoy him forever. See, for us, it is all of life pointing to the supreme being, the one who created us. The underlying theme of this scripture as well seems to say as much too in verse 3, he guides us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The character of God is seen through his children as his spirit lives in power in us, producing fruit in us. And his presence lives in our lives in a way that gives us boldness and power akin to having somebody strong in your midst. As many of you know, I do much of my personal study and much of my sermon preparation in public places. There's a variety of reasons for that. One is I have major ADD, and if I get in the quiet offices of Prism Church, I literally might fall asleep. I mean, I, just, I need lots of stimulation. It's kind of a personality flaw or the way God created me, depending on which day of the week you talk to me. So I'm sitting usually in a subway because that's about my budget, and I'll put in my earbuds and I'll listen to my music, and we won't go there today about what kind of music I listen to, but I, I'm doing my preparation, and I usually, that's the only way I can even carry on conversations with people who don't know the Lord, and strangely enough, people will come up to me in restaurants with my Bible and commentaries open on the table, and, and they will begin to ask me questions. Now, I, I, I mentioned this because one time I was in uh, a restaurant, and I was you know, busy about my work, And I looked up and I noticed that there was five cops. There were two police officers at the front eating and three at the back. And for a second there I thought, if I have any fear right now of my physical safety, I need some therapy. Because it was the safest lunch spot in the history of the world. I mean, think about it. Who's going to hold up that store? Who's going to try to harm you? in a subway with five cops there. They're armed, for goodness sake. And yet some of us, we act as if we are out there on our own, even if we're assured from Scripture that we have the power of Almighty God with us all the time. The reality of what Scripture teaches us is that the Spirit of God lives in us, that the Almighty Creator is with us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He goes with us, and it is in his presence in the valley of the shadow of death that you and I need not fear. And so simply put, the degree to which you and I fear is the degree to which we do not comprehend being in the presence of one who protects us. Once by his miracle grace, once by the power of his spirit, 
that you and I kind of start to comprehend in fuller ways and in more in-depth ways the reality of the presence of God's Spirit living in us, those fears begin to get pushed to the side. It may require a daily actual effort to think about and ponder on and meditate on the realities of scriptures. And let me give you one, because one of the most powerful scriptures in the New Testament is in John 14, 15 through 21. You can turn there in your Bible. Again, it won't be up on the screen. You can listen along or turn to John 14, where Jesus says, if you love me, in verse 15, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And whoever has my commands and keeps them, he is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and manifest myself to him. You and I have the presence of God. If we're the children of God, the promise of the Scriptures is you are the dwelling place of the Lord. You are are the place where God is going to reside. He is present with you, not only to help you avoid temptation, but according to verse 5, to orchestrate victory over the enemies of our soul. And that's both now and in the future. He prepares a table before us. His power is there to stymie our fears. And finally, I'll say this to you this morning, encourage you this way. His presence satisfies our soul. You anoint me with over, it says in oil, it says in verse 5, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The presence of God in our lives is not theoretical. It isn't simply a platitude to keep us from being afraid. The Holy Spirit literally dwells in the physical being of each genuine believer. When David would reference in verse 6, he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever, he would be speaking of the tabernacle of God. And in the Old Testament, that's where the Holy Spirit lived. It lived in the holy of holies, in in the inner courts. And only the high priest could go in there once a year and with a blood sacrifice for the people. And the joy that the people would experience at the festivals when they would gather around the tabernacle and the joy of being able to be in the presence of Almighty God. The thought of that, he would say, it's going to happen forever. I can't wait. Eternity will come and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. The promise for you and I is that eternal life starts right now. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. You are the tabernacle of God. Eternal life dwelling in the house of the Lord forever is you and I beginning now to enjoy the Spirit of the Lord living in us, to satisfy that thing 
which is crying out for us to be loved, somebody to come and rescue us, somebody to come and protect us, somebody to come and care for our needs. There's something in all of us that longs to be loved like that, and we're goofy enough and broken enough to look for it in all sorts of things other than the presence of God and in the beauty of the gospel. Eternal life has begun for you and me. David was referencing in his anointing his head with oil, his own coronation as king. But the truth of the gospel that we know is that all of us are princes of Jesus. We are his children, princes and princesses. He loves us.